Greetings internet, it's Piotr, and it's been a little bit of a while. I wish to drop this note to both acknowledge and apologise for the inconsistent upload schedule recently. I've had some technical and logistical problems, but we can and will do better. That said, I also want to say thank you to all of you who have supported me throughout this endeavour so far, and particularly to my patrons who do make it possible to purchase new equipment, such as the laptop I had to buy when mine showed the blue screen of death. And so if you do find value in what we do on the Global Gambit, then consider becoming a Patreon where you can gain extra features like additional conversations or make a one-time support via Buy Me A Coffee, both of which you can find in the description below. And because many of you know that I am a one-man show, these tiny little contributions can make a huge difference in helping me to streamline the production and get you more of what we enjoy most, getting guests more frequently, deeper and better quality conversations and an improvement of the experience for all of you. Take care, everyone, and enjoy the show. This is The Global Gambit. maybe some of us have been. Uh, there are unfortunately tensions within uh, the region. Uh, violent clashes have taken place between uh, ethnic Serbs and police belonging to the Albanian-led government. Now, if you're not familiar with the um, complexities of this region or sub-region, there continues to be a peacekeeping force known as K4 that is made up of around 3,000 troops within the region. And it's some of these troops that were injured a couple of weeks ago in clashes with um, some of the communities in the area. Uh, this comes down largely to the ethnic diversity of Kosovo, about 92, 95% of the population are Albanian, um, but 4% or so are Serbian. But it's this uh, ethnic division that um, you see a lot of flare-ups being driven from. Essentially, uh, Kosovo remains a country that is only recognized by about 99, I think, of the 193 internationally recognized UN members, um, 22 of uh, the European Union, the US and the UK, but Russia and China don't. So they block uh, the UN membership of Kosovo. This has obviously been a, a problem for Serbia as well, because many Serbs think that the uh, Kosovo part of the country, in their eyes, is where the Serbia as a state originates from. Uh, this is what led to the Serbian-Kosovo uh, conflict in the 1990s, uh, and is also reflective of the broader ethno uh, tensions that exist within the Balkans at large. Um, why have the flare-outs happened now? Well, to make sense of that, and to talk more broadly about the situation, uh, is, a, is a good friend of mine. Um, I hope, although we've never met, I hope I could say she's a good friend of mine, Ivana Stradna. She is a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy uh, in Washington, D.C. Now, normally I would be in Washington, but I'm not. I'm in London uh, and will be actually visiting this region uh, in due course. Uh, but she's a special correspondent also for the Kievan Post and has been extremely um, uh, active and informative in the realm of the developments uh, in the past couple of weeks. Um, Ivana, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, what would you i guess the best thing to kick off with really is uh, is just to ask you what is going on and 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 how should we interpret it is it is it a a major concern or just a traditional flare up and it will sort of dissipate and and, and calm down over the next couple of weeks and uh indeed i mean you put like a brilliantly uh, 
background of what has been happening in Kosovo. And as I just mentioned earlier, uh, what we see today, it is really, really nothing new. This is just the continuation of what has been happening in the Balkans over uh, the past few years intensively. What we saw, for example, uh, a few weeks ago when in Serbs in northern Kosovo injured, I think around uh, 30 members of NATO peacekeeping forces that you just mentioned, following confrontation um, in, in northern uh, Kosovo. This is just the continuation of the problem that we also had last year with, with uh, license plates, similar uh, escalations. Tensions, as you mentioned, between uh, Serbia and Kosovo have always been very, very high. As Serbia does not recognize Kosovo's um, independence. But this really marks the most violent clash uh, yet since uh, last year. And the violence, you know, it erupted in a place called Zvechen. And prior to that violent you know, outbreak, actually, uh, Kosovo police and NATO peacekeeping uh, troops, they were uh, guarding the municipal buildings uh, in the city and three other northern uh, Kosovo municipalities other than uh, Zvechen, because those areas, just, they just had like a elections that uh, Serbian protesters uh, boycotted. And there are numerous reasons why we can actually also believe that the Serbian president also supported the boycott of the elections, basically emphasizing the Serbs should not tolerate, he called it like a foreign occupation. And while Serbs boycotted the elections, uh, there was only a 3.5, so less than 4% of voter turnout. And all four municipalities actually ended up uh, electing a mayors from ethnic Albanian parties. And the Kosovo's prime minister uh, argued that this law turnout was due to the threatening campaign orchestrated uh, by Belgrade and blackmail, you know, by different uh, criminal uh, groups. It is largely believed that those protesters, they were backed by uh, Belgrade and they refused to accept the election results. And the president of Serbia, he voiced the support for the protesters, basically stating that they were conducting a peaceful political uprising in response to injustices uh, from their occupiers. And after the elections, protesters, they wanted to stop the elected officials from going inside the municipal buildings. And after Serbian protesters began, they started to attack NATO uh, peacekeeping uh, forces and Kosovo police forces. Um, so uh, NATO basically troops, they had to use tear gas and to stop, you know, protesters from violently attacking them, uh, you know, throwing objects. I mean, I saw the videos. They're really, really brutal and uh, not very, you know, pleasant, uh, pleasant to see. It, it was just it's unbelievable. Horrible. And we are absolutely and we are talking about. NATO peacekeepers. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to explain, you know, what happened like uh, uh, several weeks ago. But even since then, I mean, things are still very, very tense in, in, in the region and in Kosovo. I mean, I'm monitoring very closely, you know, what's happening on social media because people are sharing videos. Um, and because uh, we do not have enough time to go into every tiny detail, 
uh, of it, you know, I'm just making sure, you know, to cover the basics, but certainly there are more details, for example, whether there will be like a new elections, there will held like a new elections, how, you know, the United States um, and, and the European Union responded. And actually, that's also something that I want to discuss because that is, in my view, tremendously important. You know, at the beginning, before you started like a recording, I stated that it is impossible to understand what's going on in Kosovo right now unless we put it in the context of a larger policy in the Balkans, especially when it comes to how the United States, how Russia, how China, and how the European Union specifically per- perceives the situation. Because the last thing that United States and European Union want right now is to have another uh, conflict um, in in the region. Um, So immediately, you know, uh, after that clash between Serbs and NATO peacekeeping, NATO peacekeepers, uh, the United States actually accused Kosovo escalation and the US ambassador basically stated that, you know, actions taken by the government of Kosovo have created a crisis atmosphere in the north. And this was followed also by Macron, who also accused uh, Kosovo officials of escalating the crisis. A very, very similar uh, thing, you know, happened with NATO chief, you know, who emphasized, you know, similar thing, you know, the pressure must be escalate. But then, you know, another thing, important thing happened in the meantime, there was police, uh, three uh, Kosovo police officers that were detained last week by Serbian authorities. Oh, I see. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. Like the situation is really not de- de- de-escalating. From what I understand, the you mentioned the elections, right? So to contextualize for people, you know, there were some local elections that were held. And uh, essentially, from what I understand, again, the, the turnout was not like 40% or 44%, it was 4%. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. This, and, and this has led to uh, gross amounts of social unrest and, and general discontent with the seemingly sort of, um, you know, political makeup uh, at the moment. And I think symbolically, Kosovo is is quite symbolic of, of the how the world is increasingly sort of aligned, right? On the Western side, those who support the independence of Kosovo versus countries like Russia, China and others that don't recognise Kosovo as, a, as an independent state when they declared it unilaterally in 2008. So, um and, and I think that that is obviously something that comes to mind and something I want to explore with you a little bit later is the obviously the war in Ukraine, Russia's ridiculously historically close uh, association with Serbia and how this is all playing mm. the um, into the uh, into the thought processes of, I think, policymakers in the uh, in the region. And one of those policymakers you mentioned is, is obviously those in NATO, because the situation with K4 is uh, is very bad, is very delicate. Uh, a lot of the staff there have been, you know, very surprised by the sort of response from, you know, various populations in the area. But also, um, I believe it was late last year, for example, when uh, there was another flare-up over number plates. Every Correct. so often, for listeners, every so often there can be flare-ups with number plates based on, again, mainly ethnic uh, reasons. Um, and the, the NATO alliance actually released a very strongly worded statement 
uh, around that time, which I think caught off a lot of people, by, um, caught a lot of people off guard, rather, because it was it was not characteristic of sort of the, the NATO that we're used to in the context of Ukraine, for example. Um, so, Ivana, I don't know, you know, I'd be very interested. What's your perspective of K4 specifically in this? Because you know, we, we've got also the U, um, uh, Unimil, uh, Unimic, um, uh, which is the United Nations mm-hmm. mission in Kosovo. Uh, what's their role in this? I was just wondering if you could break down for listeners the, uh, I mean, the between K4 and, and, I mean, and sort of non-state actors. Okay, so one thing, you know, that I want to emphasize why the situation in Kosovo is, you know, concerning to many. It is precisely because NATO peacekeeping forces are over there. And that raises additional, immensely important question as to whether, you know, external forces want to make, want to actually show that NATO is nothing more than a paper tiger. And again, Piotr, you are talking about, we are talking about this in 2023. I warned about Russia challenging NATO in Kosovo in 2021, not because they had a crystal ball at that time, but rather because Russia was setting informational conditions all the way back then, because uh, within the context of of the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia had a very, very concrete goal, certainly proceed with a war in Ukraine, take it, you know, within the three days, but then to use the Balkans to distract the West. And that was all in the context of Moldova, of Georgia, of the conflict uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. This was, you know, all part of the same of the same uh, uh, structure. And what we, for example, saw this morning in Moldova, Moldova uh, uh, Constitutional Court, they just, you know, declared unconstitutional pro-Russian party. They are moving towards um, uh, the European Union. Things, you know, I think in Georgia are still, you know, uh, under question mark, but it's contained the situation. Uh, the dialogue between Armenia and Azerbaijan I'm not trying, you know, to, to change the topic, but I, I need to put the, this is really important to put it in the context uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia. You know, we, we saw very powerful statements coming from Armenia, even when they uh, last year, when they asked the CSTO, what I like to call Russia mini NATO, uh, for help in its uh, war with Azerbaijan and putting through them under the bus. He didn't want to help. So the Balkans is a perfect opportunity for Russia uh, to use to show that NATO is a paper tiger. It's like a, a very vulnerable place. And Russia really, really knows every single soft spot. And the thing is, this is all, of course, helped with internal forces because the complexity of this situation is that, uh, for example, right now, uh, Prof- uh, President Vucic has huge problems back home. There are protests every week after two mass shootings and um and he's also helping this crisis to boost it you know and to 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 inflame it always to escalate but then to de-escalate and to tell the west well you know there is no security in the region without me i am always going to uh, uh to help you know maintain uh the peace it's this is the complexity of the situation and uh and and why i'm very concerned about miscalculation now what it has to do you know, with CAFR. So CAFR has an obligation, certainly, to maintain peace and security uh, in, that, uh, in that part of Europe. And uh, even though it's not like a, 
if I may call it like a Kosovo is not like NATO member state, it is still an opportunity to show that KFOR could be a paper tiger. You know, you mentioned last year a very powerful statement issued by KFOR. And I have to tell you, I did not expect KFOR uh, back then. Uh, actually, it was not last year, it was a few months ago, or maybe even last year. Maybe I believe it was, um, um, what, I think it was in the December, late right? Fall. Yes, November, late December. Fall, yeah. yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. You're right. Um, so they issued a very, so for our listeners to put it in context, a very powerful statement basically claiming that in case of any escalation, KFOR will uh, step up and um, and they will, you know, sort it out. And that's why what happened uh, uh, three weeks ago, I think it was a very, you know, costly signal um, to show that KFOR is ready uh, 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 to uh, to uh, maintain, you know, the peace and security in the region. Now, to put it in the context where we can, you know, expect next, uh, whoever believes this situation will uh, de-escalate because, for example, this morning NATO put another, you know, very strong statement yesterday. The United States put, you know, another, you know, quite uh, powerful uh, statement. Uh, uh, these are all, if I may say, uh, cheap words as of today because there is no like a costly uh, signal that can uh, uh, deter Belgrade and Moscow. And, you know, whenever people tell me, you know, but Russia is weak, uh, Russia does not even have like enough tanks and jets uh, to help uh, 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 Serbia. I actually don't even think that the whole goal of Russia is to roll on tanks uh, in the region. They do not have to do that because they're literally waging the concept of hybrid war. And uh, while some of our listeners can be familiar with uh, with that notion, it means not only, of course, the role of cybersecurity information operations, but also, you know, the use of force. That's one thing. The second thing is we should also not forget that the Balkans is still, you know, filled with uh, with with weapons. Now, there is also another part of the story, which is whether such a war would benefit Vucic. I don't think that he would benefit from a, a full war such as the one that we experienced, you know, during the 90s, because he is an autocrat. All he wants is to remain in power. Corruption is very huge, like big in Serbia. And um, he is having, you know, quite, you know, comfortable life. And he has been balancing successfully between Washington, Moscow and Beijing and, and Brussels for a very long time. But then uh, Russia well, is... Well, Ivana, can I, can I just ask you on that, actually? Because um, you Certainly. made me think of, of, of that. And uh, for listeners, I, I think that that balancing act um, or, or what's known as multi-vector policy uh, in some realms is, is basically a very good illustration because... Cast your mind back to the UN uh, General Assembly votes, which are non-binding, which means they have no uh, enforcement. They're just symbolic on the Ukraine war. We've actually seen several times, if not, I think every time, Serbia vote uh, in favour of condemning Russia's actions in Ukraine and various things to do with the war. Um, so do you think that that's uh, an example, Ivana, of, of Serbia trying to sort of play both sides, you know, make it look optically like... <laughs> Like they're, you know, in support of Ukraine's uh, sovereignty and independence, whilst also, you know, well, supporting the Kremlin's supply of energy and uh, and, and being an autocratic entity in, in Budic. What's 
And what, what would you say to that? That's a great, that's a great question and tremendously important because every time when people ask me in Washington, but you see, you know, Serbia voted in such a, such a way, like in the United Nations, I always like to emphasize that those are UN General Assembly resolutions that are not binding one. Two, if you read carefully all those resolutions, they do condemn uh, Russian use of force in Ukraine. But also, if you, for example, read some of, some of the resolutions regarding uh, recently, you know, declared independent territories, including, you know, their stance on Crimea, of course, that Serbia is not going to support that because of a possible precedent for Kosovo. This is not because of some altruistic reason. This perfectly actually fits a Serbian agenda. And people do not understand that when they talk about Serbian support in the United Nations. On the other hand, Serbia has not imposed uh, sanctions on Russia. Uh, just a few days ago, again, you know, Serbia had a meeting, Serbian Ministry of Defense had a meeting with uh, with a Russian diplomat, Serbian director of, the, of intelligence agency. He was in Moscow. I do believe that our relations between Russia and Serbia are still alive and well. On the other hand, while we are talking to today, there is another uh, NATO uh, Serbia uh, supported like a, a military exercise and the United States embassy was very excited about this, saying, but you see, Serbia is moving towards the West, except for the fact that probably uh, the U.S. Embassy forgot that this is a regular military exercise, and this is nothing uh, new, NATO and Serbia, because Serbia is in the program of the partnership of, of peace. So Vucic is in a very uncomfortable, certain situation, because he, I'm sure, he received lots of pressure, you know, from the West regarding sanctions on, on Russia, but also Russia is not happy because of his balancing strategy, and we already know uh, how Russia perceives that from uh, the question of loyalty, um, and how he is, you know, undermining, you know, Moscow's uh, plans. Now, people keep, you know, still telling me the same story, but uh, Serbia's future is in the West, Serbia's future is in the European Union. Even President Vucic stated multiple times that Serbia is on the European Union path. And yes, he stated European Union path, not European Union membership, because his uh, government, uh, governing, that is, um, um, not fully benefits a lot from the European Union path and all the money that he can receive from European Union funds, but I'm not sure that he would benefit from the European Union membership where there are pretty clear rules, etc., etc. So I also do not buy uh, that argument. And this is, you know, why I emphasized a few minutes ago, whoever believes that this is going to de-escalate with even today's um, statement uh, that came from uh, NATO is sorely mistaken because uh, Vucic also needs Russia for his political survival. And he has been playing uh, a very, very wise game from his perspective that he would always escalate things and then de-escalate. And again, 
as I mentioned at the very beginning, what we see today in Kosovo, this is something similar that we experienced in Republika Srpska and what we saw also in Montenegro, a very similar strategy. Um, and for example, in Montenegro, uh, the role of the Serbian Orthodox Church, or for example, in Republika Srpska, the mm. role of uh, Dodik, who is a Serb leader who was just, you know, in Moscow having a meeting with Patrushev and, and Putin. So uh, I, you just wanted to ask me something, so we'll stop. And I also wanted to tell you something. So uh, Colonel Jeff, uh, so he texted me and um, he also would love to speak with us today. And I know that um, he knows a lot about the Balkans. And if you could please also uh, host him as a speaker. Yeah, so you've uh, you've just foreshadowed what I was about to say, which is uh, for listeners and viewers, uh, a couple of points of note. One, but one of the reasons I record the podcast on Twitter is because you can have live opportunities to hear from people within the region, experts, um, people who've just come back from the region, who live in the region, uh, and it makes for the, the conversation to be that much dynamic. I do have one last question for you, Ivana, and then I welcome Jeff to chime in on the same question or if he wants to uh, piggyback off anything else you said, but specifically about the ongoing uh, tensions this time around is that they're not specifically to do with number plates uh, or the border. It's to do with an internal political situation in Kosovo itself. And more specifically, the fact that we're seeing an increasingly frustrated, I think, Western collective, right? I've read quite a few articles in the preparation for our conversation about, frankly, how pissed off some members of the West, i.e. the US, the European Union more broadly, are with some of Kosovo's actions in this. Now, you might not agree with my framing or you don't agree with the with the wording, but what's your take on the fact that we are seeing a little bit of, you know, Macron, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you know, are, is Kosovo putting a, getting a little bit too... Um, carried away in some of the statements or claims that they're making or is this largely still a, uh, a, an external sort of influence from Serbia and, and, and Russia to sort of cause you know destabilization so again to answer your question uh, before that I do agree with you when it comes to the wording that the West is upset with the Kosovo government and they believe that they are responsible for escalation in this uh, particular uh, situation. But now let me put this in the context of a broader uh, politics in, in the Balkans. So uh, let's start with the ultimate goal for the West. What is the ultimate goal for the West in the region right now after uh, February, 2022? There is only one thing. They just don't want to have any issue in the Balkans. They don't want to have any problem that can escalate and open the second front. Uh, and they will do everything possible to appease anyone who can escalate things. Just for example, if you take a look at how the West has been approaching Republika Srpska or what happened you know, in, in Montenegro last, this is all you really need to know uh, what is happening. So having said that, what's happening right now in Kosovo, uh, they do understand that Vucic, I mean, Serbia is significantly larger than, than Kosovo, but also um, they have very uh, close ties you know, with, with uh, Russia and China. And the logic behind this is, Let's give Vucic whatever he wants, so uh, so he does not, you know, uh, escalate uh, in in the region. Um, and the goal is certainly, you know, to show 
that which it is uh, uh, turning towards the West and saying no to Putin. Uh, and uh, this is precisely you know, why they are uh, accusing Kosovo, even though, uh, I mean, there were only 4%, you know, people who voted. Nobody, I have not, you know, heard uh, openly from, from the West uh, talking about, you know, those elections and who boycotted and why. I've heard, you know, there will be a new uh, elections, uh, repeated elections. But again, yes, the West, you know, is certainly upset, you know, and accusing Kosovo of escalating by appeasing, you know, by appeasing uh, President uh, Vucic out of fear. But we already know what happens when you're trying to appease people such as Vucic or, or Putin. Weakness is emboldens them. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, I genuinely doubt that Vucic can easily say no to Russia. There is still energy dependence. Uh, let's not forget. So even for strategic purposes, it's not, you know, for a mere uh, ideological reasons related to the Slavic Brotherhood or uh, or or uh, the role of the Serbian Orthodox Church and religion. Uh, but I do believe there is like a strategic interest uh, why Serbia needs uh Russia uh, right now. So I, I think it will be very, very difficult for Vucic to say uh, no to Putin. Also, let's not forget that Russia also has strategic interests in the region. They do not need to occupy the Balkans, as I said. They are literally just using the Balkans as a place where they can um, escalate things um, and then uh, to use the region to blackmail the West. And we already saw the strategy, such a strategy before, where you position yourself as a regional mediator and then tell the West, if you do not want this thing you know, to escalate, you need to renegotiate things with me on, on Ukraine. And this is precisely what the West is trying to avoid. Uh, I do believe that this is a very immature uh, response and this is not going to uh, de-escalate uh, the crisis because, look, I'm following very uh, Russian uh, media and Russian social media. Russian, for example, outlet Zvezda, which is linked to the Russian Minister of Defense, the very first fact that they are writing, uh, I don't want to say daily, but certainly weekly on, on, mm. on the Balkans. It's not a good thing. The way, the way they talk about uh, the Balkans is clearly not a good thing because they see also uh, how the United States is trying to use the Balkans to hew, uh, basically to uh, show that Russia is not a credible uh, ally. Uh, but I do believe that Russia still has uh, enough chips that they can use in the region. As of today, I can call you next week and with a very different statement, but as of today, <laughs> I do not believe uh, the region will escalate and there will be another you know, war that we saw during the 90s. But I do believe that we are going to see even more escalation and more intensified hybrid war um, in the region. Well, it makes me think about the conversation we had in March with um, a panel of um, academics from uh, SAIS in, in D.C. One of them was uh, very critical of Serbia particularly, whilst the other two were slightly different in their positions. Uh, but largely all of them were emphasizing the role that Russia has, uh, the Kremlin has in 
you know, the destabilization. And, and, and it's one of these things that I think has been growing in momentum, which is that the EU is, you know, considering fast tracking the membership of countries like Ukraine and Moldova or uh, NATO as well, but also uh, Bosnia. Bosnia is a country that you mentioned, the Republic of Srpska, uh, and, you know, the Bosnian war was arguably the, the most bloody of the broader Yugoslav wars. And, and, and sort of what's interesting is that the sort of the notion is basically to fast track Bosnia into what's known as the Stabilization Association program or process, which means that Serbia isn't part, um, sorry, Bosnia is not part of the EU fully, but it has access to funding, um, you know, resources, whatever it is, to, to help um, modernize the state, decrease corruption, this sort of thing, improve the institutional framework, basically, as a way to better protect the country from, uh, you know, uh, inputs from the Kremlin as a way to sort of create ethno. Uh, you know tensions, so th- th- there is a lot of um, moving parts in in, in this uh, part of the world, um, and and so Serbia Kosovo is is arguably the main crux of that at the moment. But you mentioned Jeff, uh, and Jeff has yes, been able and to we join saw. Us. Yes, I will give. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, go just ahead. to tell you regarding Bosnia, just one tiny you know comment on that. You're absolutely right. Uh, the United States and European Union have been doing exactly what you just mentioned. And guess what? Uh, just a few weeks ago, a Serb leader, Dodik, he went to Moscow and he had a meeting with Petrushev. He had a meeting with uh, with Putin. Uh, pay attention to Republika Srpska. I still don't believe that things will de-escalate even there. As I said, I do not believe that there will be another war like the one that we saw during the 90s as of today. But I do believe uh, that there will be lots of escalation. And the problem is that uh, the West is not willing, is certainly able, but not willing uh, to put Russia on the defensive. And uh, Russia is doing, you know, uh, using the region in a very, very wise way. Again, there are lots of details regarding negotiation processes between uh, Kosovo and and Serbia that I want to dive into details because I wanted to talk about the big picture due to uh, time uh, time restraints. So I'll just give a floor to Colonel Jeff, and I very much look forward to hearing what he has to say. Yeah, I'm delighted to have Colonel Jeff joining us. He's uh, an award-winning author and uh, international security expert who's been featured in Newsweek, BBC, and, and more. So, Jeff, great to have you with us. Well, what's your take? Uh, I believe you are in Kosovo about two weeks ago. I was, actually, yeah. So thanks for bringing her up, Ivana. It's so great to see you. I, I can't disagree with that. She she and I, I don't think anyone can see things more uh, in the same frame as I do with her. And I truly enjoy bouncing ideas and, and, and discussions with her. You know, I, I will just, uh, I'll give a couple vignettes. I was the, I was the senior defense official assigned to Kosovo um, uh, between 2016 and 2018. I was there when Oliver Ivanovich was was assassinated up in the north. You know, the north is, has been for, for, for many, many years has been very, very lawless. Um, uh, When I went up there as a defense official, uh, as a diplomat, maybe half of the cars had license plates on. So that this license plate issue, you know, has, has been, has been a longstanding issue. It's, it's not something that, that was recently, uh, that, that, that recently came about. Uh, I completely agree with Ivana on Serbia and the European Union. I think that, 
you know, um, Vucic isn't stupid. I, m- I might not like the guy, but he's definitely not stupid. And and what he's done with the European Union, he's literally strung them along, right? They they started a relationship about aspiring to join the European Union in 2012. Of the 35 chapters that have to be opened and closed to join the European Union, Serbia has opened 22 chapters <laughs> and they've closed two in 11 years. I mean, that, that that is literally the slowest accession process that a nation could ever have. I don't, I don't think it can go any slower. Right. So he's literally just stringing the West along. And, and, and I don't know why Western leaders are so that they, they, they literally jump to every opportunity, every little crisp that he gives them to say, Hey, I'm thinking about leaning West," And they, they just get so excited. And, and I agree with her. There's this appeasement concept and, he he's um he's he he gets to saber rattle and every time he saber rattles with with Kosovo uh what we end up with is the his his uh his poll numbers go up which is really disappointing because i think that there was a a really strong movement uh in belgrade and across serbia that that was kind of upset with him for a long time we get a little bit of saber rattling all of a sudden we have an escalation and of course, we we we're ending up right back where where we were, right? Vucic is 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 galvanizing or or bringing back all those people that were upset with him. Um, from a political perspective, in in, in Kosovo, that this will be the last point I make. I, I I think the U.S. expectations or the Western expectations from politicians in Kosovo, I think, is a little disingenuous on, on a couple fronts. The first one is. K4 has been there for years, that the force structure has been drawn down from 30,000 to, as you said, roughly around 3,000. Uh, but there's there's no strategic insight that's been given by the West. Uh, and as my former ambassador, Ambassador Greg Delaware, I, I think the world of him, uh, you know, he and I would sit and we would lament and say, look, what, you know, everyone wants K4 to go away, but K4 can't go away until Kosovo has its own inherent politi- uh, uh, security structures that can defend itself from from Serbia. But these same Western countries that want K4 to go away refuse to give Kosovo the ability to truly have an army. <laughs> so, so you're kind of stuck in a, in a catch-22. Um, I had dinner. Uh, I was lucky enough to have dinner with, with the new mayor of Kosovo, uh, Mayor Rama. Uh, Ivan, I don't know if you've met him, but I, I strongly recommend I, – I, re- I know he's relatively new. But what's beautiful about his, him is, is he actually is from London. Uh, he's a self-made, very, you know, he's wealthy, he's comfortable with money. Uh, and he decided just to go back to Kosovo. He's made his money and he loves his country. And he ran for mayor. He had a, about a 10% chance and he actually beat the Veda Vendosia candidate, which is which is quite fascinating. I, I truly enjoyed my lunch with him. I think he has some great, great views. He's he's Western educated and, and perhaps uh, perhaps he's the spark we need to, so, to move things forward. So, 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 so Jeff, just um, on this then, I want to shoot, uh, the same question to you, Ben, that I sort of asked Ivana, and Ivana do jump in at any time, you know, about the dynamics between K4 and uh, Unamik, right? Um, again, for the new listeners who've joined us, uh, Unamik is the United Nations mission in Kosovo uh, versus K4, which is a peacekeeping force from NATO. Um, and there's a particular element to this because the war in Ukraine is as much a war of words, narrative, and information as it is obviously kinetic warfare what i've seen in certain outlets or framings is that because ukraine um sorry nato used tear gas and sort of were 
assertive in their response to some of the protesters, you know, in the past couple of weeks, you know, that plays into the narrative of Russia's expansionism uh, about NATO and that it's aggressive and that, you know, given the opportunity, they will oppress and all this sort of thing. So, Jeff, how do you look at this as someone who was just there? Um, and, and how do we sort of combat that um, that framing about, uh, you know, the, the, the alliance and how it plays into the broader conflict in, in Ukraine as well? Sure. So, so it's a great question, right? And and to be fair, um, I, I think what how Russia is spinning K4's reaction is is very disingenuous, and I'll, I'll give you a reason why. Um, K4 rotates forces about every six months, right? So the main element that comes in is a U.S. brigade. They usually come from a National Guard unit, and they rotate every six months. And and once in each of those six months, there's a, an exercise, I think it's called Defender Force 23, Defender Force, whatever it is, right? And, and that is a public exercise. Uh, the press is invited. Every diplomatic mission to Kosovo is invited. Um, every NATO nation is invited because they have forces that, that are doing it. And it is a it is a demonstration of, Koso- of, of the K4's escalation of force to meet a measured response. And at any time, you can see this is exactly how K4 responds to everything. I mean, it's, this is their standard shtick. This is what they do. So to, to somehow come out and say, well, holy cow, we had no expectation that this was going to be the reaction and, and look at how they're expansionists, I would say no, every six months. For the last 10 years, this is exactly the exercise that they put forward publicly. I mean, there's press press uh, videos of of how they would go about executing to quell and control a mob mobster riot. So I I don't I don't buy that. Um, uh, but but I think it's not too too far fetched to think that Russia would spin a narrative should, if if they had the opportunity. Russia is complaining every day about K4 and we should actually remind them that they were also they, they also had a mission in Kosovo but they uh, left in 2003 so we should actually put them on the defensive and ask them you know why the hell you know they left their their Slavic brothers you know and and threw them under the bus I mean this is just you know a fun fact uh, but indeed uh, we should you know run that as an info op as I mentioned you know multiple times but uh, on on uh, I, I could not agree you know more with uh, uh, with Jeff but that's precisely you know what uh, Russia has been doing uh, weaponizing uh, uh, the K4 and 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 trying actually to show that they are also not capable. Uh, uh, to deal with the conflict. In addition to that, um, they also, for example, claim that uh, the United States is opening a new front um, in the region uh, to challenge uh, to challenge Russia. And that's exactly the same narrative that they used in Moldova recently. Um, they also used a similar narrative in Georgia, mm. as well as in uh, Azerbaijan in, in Armenia context. So um, this is uh, nothing new. But one thing I do want to do is just um, actually go into a little bit more of these sort of these uh, responses that we've seen from the West um, and just get, have the take on them because so the EU and NATO sort of essentially I'm paraphrasing here they urged uh, Mr. Curti to step back quote from a clearly provocative position the US statement that was given by Antony Blinken on the other hand was quote strongly condemning the actions by the government of Kosovo which had quote sharply and unnecessarily escalated tensions undermining our efforts to help normalize relations between Kosovo and Serbia uh, quote he also said 
there would be consequences for our bilateral relations with Kosovo. Now, from what I understand, is that there has been a potential willingness to withhold, um, you know, diplomatic engagement, aid. I mean, even Serbia's tennis star Novak Djokovic waded into the row, I believe, in the in the um, uh, in the French Open. So we've got a you know a pretty uh, sticky situation. And I guess my main question for you, Ivana, uh, before I pass it over for Jeff for his thoughts, and then we'll bring in some other voices, is. Where do we go from here? Is is this something that we will just see simmering? I know that the EU is planning, I think, to hold talks in Brussels or somewhere else in the coming days. But is this something that could boil over to really, really like uh, escalatory themes? Or is it just a case of it's, it's going to be within the sub-region and, you know, I guess, uh, to be blunt, but why why should, for example, my American listeners or people in uh, Southern Asia care? Why does this matter? And I don't want to sound callous, but for some people, I guess, you know, that that, that is something that many people might be wondering. I mean, look, we live still, you know, in a very isolationist world when it comes to foreign policy. Let's call a spade a spade. And people did not even care about Ukraine. A lot of people didn't care about Ukraine before uh, February uh, last year, even though the war was going on since 2014. Uh, the reason why I do believe that people should pay attention to what's happening right now in the Balkans, especially the European Union, um, um, and, and Europe writ large, um, it is because the last thing really that we need is to have another uh, conflict in the region that can distract us from, from Ukraine, because that's precisely what Russia, with Russia, that will be a dream come true, you know, for, for Russia now. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, as of today, I do not believe there will be a serious war, the one that we experienced during the 90s, but I do believe there will be still huge escalations. Uh, uh, the ones that we saw a few weeks ago, I do not see this going away anytime soon for several reasons. Uh, uh, number one, uh, let's talk about Serbia. For example, the president of Serbia has huge problems back home, and Kosovo serves always a, a very, very useful tool uh, to uh, rally his uh, nationalist allies in in in, in Serbia um, and to distract the domestic audience from uh, the domestic crisis. Uh, that is, you know, one thing. So he needs Kosovo for his political survival. The European Union is willing, you know, to give carrots in terms of money um, and in terms of membership. But that is, you know, not enough because, as I mentioned earlier, I do not believe that President Vucic genuinely wants to see the European Union as part of the European Union. He would love to continue on its European Union path and to receive funding, but not that. Second thing, uh, which is the question of democracy. I do work at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and it's needless to say how much I deeply care about that. And not only, you know, for some romantic, idealistic reasons, but rather because protecting democracy is also uh, a central theme uh, for protecting our national security. And by trying to uh, have another, you know, benevolent dictator who can... Uh, uh, help uh, what Washington probably wants to think, you know, with its relations with Russia, I do not think, you know, that that is going to happen because Vucic also needs Russia for his political uh, survival. Uh, having said that, I do not believe that also the European Union is willing to impose any sticks. 
uh, on, on, on Serbia out of fear and out of fear of escalation that uh, Vucic will actually go with, uh, with Moscow. Uh, that is, you know, number one thing. Second thing, let's talk again, you know, about Russia and why Russia cares about, you know, the Balkans and why Russia benefits from having this conflict frozen. Um, it's needless to say that Russia, uh, that uh, the Kosovo problem cannot be solved, you know, in the United Nations because of uh, Russia's Security Council uh, veto. Uh, but Russia also strategically benefits from having precisely those crises. So, uh, uh, for example, just NATO recently sent uh, sent I think 500 people from uh, from uh, from Turkey. They promised even more. Uh, but that's precisely you know, what Russia wants us to focus more on the Balkans uh, uh, so, and to distract us you know, from, uh, from Ukraine. Do not forget that Russia's goals for Ukraine is to have a prolonged and protracted war. Uh, and the Balkans is just a part of a puzzle. They couldn't care less about the Balkans in terms of uh, the territory, in terms of so basically occupying territory and stuff like that. They just need uh, the region Region, you know, for uh, always having an inflamed uh, uh, conflict that they can always use uh, against uh, the West. Uh, therefore, just to conclude, I do not believe that uh, this particular situation will de-escalate for good. I do believe that we'll see more uh, crisis in the region. I do believe that um, Kosovo and Republika Srpska will remain uh, to very, very uh, uh, heated places uh, for uh, for some time, and the only way that we can fix this is to uh, um, take away uh, Russia's rule over there. But it will be very difficult, also because Serbia, for example, is energy dependent from uh, uh, from Russia. And the second thing, um, it is because Washington policy is a lazy politics, which means they do not like to uh, deal with the complexity of situation. Um, and uh, they would just like to contain the situation. Um, so this is precisely you know, why this is not going uh, away anywhere, anytime soon. Well, thank you for that, Ivana. Um... But yeah, Jeff, what's what's your th thoughts on 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 the question I posed to Ivana? If it's not too provocative, <laughs> no, no, it's no, it's not. I I will tell you that um, that first of all, I, I agree with everything she said, but I'll take a little bit of a different tact, right? So so to me, Kosovo is there is a vibe there, and there 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 is life there, and that this idea that they have a democracy and and capitalism is is unbelievable and i'll give you just a couple quick examples right um a couple years ago there was a four point sheridan built there uh last year that that hotel was the number one sheridan ranked worldwide <laughs> it, it was the number one best sheridan ranked worldwide this year the general manager was ranked the number one general manager of uh, of any sheridan around uh around the world um, you have the diaspora, which, you know, they, these are people who left and they fled because because of what was going on and they're refugees and they made a lot of money across Europe. And, and the diaspora does pour a lot of money into Kosovo. But what I would tell you is there's a there's a shift going on uh, And my friends in Kosovo and, and even Mayor Rama pointed out, he's like many of the diaspora are starting to see Kosovo coming around and they realize for for the same amount of money that they have in Switzerland or Austria 
or other places, they can live far better in Kosovo, uh, have a, a much better quality of life, and they're bringing all that money back into there. So Kosovo is changing dramatically from just a financial and business perspective, but I'd also say from a military perspective, I was responsible for sending uh, Kosovo security members to the United States to participate in what was called IMET, or International, uh, International Military Education and Training. And these were anything from, from uh, you know, Army training for how to be a brigade commander or a ranger or even going to West Point or the Air Force Academy. And what I, what I would tell you is the vast majority of Kosovo kids that go to U.S. programs, they're knocking it out of the park. The number one female at the Air Force Academy right now from a from a physical fitness perspective is the, is the Kosovo student, uh, the Kosovo cadet. She is literally unbelievable. And, and she's proud, proud to be there. They're, they're all doing great. Um, they graduate almost always in the top 10 percent from the UK school at uh, somebody help me. What's the, the equivalent of West Point in in, uh, in London? I'm failing it right now. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, they, they do. They do quite well. So so I'll end it there. But um, yeah, they're Kosovo's got a very interesting. It's far different than it is in Belgium. Well, fascinating. I, I, I did. Uh, uh, do you want to jump back in? Go ahead. So yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you uh, on on all those points that you just uh, mentioned. But my point is, does really the United States truly and deeply cares about that? Uh, how does, for example, uh, Blinken? Uh, think about, you know, the cost of Serbia relations when it comes to democracy promotion that you have just mentioned. I have to, uh, I have to admit, I don't think, you know, that that's American priority right now. And that's, you know, one of the key concerns for me, because as I stated, it's not the promotion of democracy for some romantic reasons. It is precisely because of national security reasons, and let's call a spade a spade, the United States has a long history of uh, working with dictators and appeasing dictators. And this is, you know, why um, why I'm also, you know, concerned about um, the situation um, in the region and why I do believe that uh, things will escalate. Because every time when I see a NATO or a Serbian or just like American or, or the EU statement, how deeply concerned they are. Um, what are the sanctions about this? I am not sure, you know, that there will be uh, willing to impose sanctions unless, you know, there is a major shift um, in, in, in the politics. So I, I would love to hear actually what Jeff has to say about, you know, national security and uh, American approach towards the region and whether he believes that uh, where this crisis is going to uh, end. And I have to tell you, Piotr, I need to leave because we stayed here like a 20, 30 minutes and it has been like more than an hour and have a meeting very soon. Uh, but uh, before I leave, uh, if you don't mind, I would love to hear uh, um, what Jeff has to say about uh, about that. Yeah, uh, Jeff, do you want to give your quick take? Yeah, so so real quick, I, I, you know, Ivana, you and I both know, I, I think the problem with the United States is we're, we've become immune to, we have crisis fatigue, right? I mean, every, every week there was, there's or every month there's always a crisis in, in Kosovo. And you get to this point that you have crisis fatigue and they, they never escalate to the point where where, you know, it's all out war. But but I, I do share a little bit of concern, I think, with you in the sense that over the past few months that that 
the, 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 the crisis levels have set new thresholds, right? You've got Serbian military inside the UN SCR 1244 uh, uh, out of bounds areas, right? So they, they pushed forces farther south than they were supposed to. And that was very provocative. You now have this, you know, K-4 soldiers wounded, some with gunshot wounds. So the, 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 the escalation of the, of the crisis is something to be concerned with. It's not as, it's not as, you know, it's not like building a wall in Mitrovica anymore. It's not, uh, it's not the Dachani monastery and what's going, you know, glass bottles and, and Molotov cocktails. It's, it's escalated, right? And it's escalated to a point where I think th- that we do have to pay attention. So what I would say um, is the one thing I thought was quite interesting is that when I was in Kosovo and Serbia uh, a couple of times in the past few years, uh, one of the staff members uh, that I, I chatted with was basically pointing out to me that sort of the, the notion was basically you couldn't get, you'd never get Serbia and the government of Serbia to, you know, fully go to the extent of recognizing Kosovo as an independent state. So many Serbians don't recognize Kosovo as an independent state. The majority of the international community doesn't. Uh, depending upon how you count the numbers um, in the UN, right? Um, But what he did point out was that essentially the relations between the two countries, aside from these flare-ups, has been somewhat functional, not necessarily um, positive, but functional, right? And and sort of Serbia essentially doesn't recognise Kosovo as an independent state, but engages with the entities in Pristina as if they were. So it's, it's a very sort of interesting case of grey area here in international relations. They're not officially recognised, but there is a sort of diplomatic or official engagement in terms of, you know, Kosovo has some engagement with Serbia of autonomy uh, and, and, and so on. So, but if you ask, I think a lot of Kosovo on the, on the ground, you know, and, and Serbians for that matter, you know, it's, it's not that clear cut. Um, I do want to jump over to, I believe, Abir, who has a quick question for you, Ivana, if you have time to answer it, and then we'll uh, we'll jump over to Budi. Thanks, uh, Ivana. Uh, I was really uh, wondering whether you got uh, the chance to, to, to see any indication or any impression of the of what the public sentiment on both sides of the of the Serbian Kosovo border is and how their uh, how the people's reaction to to the actions of their leaders is and whether they are even heard at all. I'm so glad you know that you asked this question because I have friends both in Belgrade but also uh, in, in Serbia but also you know in Kosovo and I speak with them and uh, the reality in Serbia uh, among uh, pro-Western people they're all very much aware that Kosovo is an independent state and uh, that basically has just been used as a tool uh, that uh, that basically uh, is a political tool you know uh, uh, from the leaders which is along with the previous government, because let's call a spade a spade, that even after uh, so-called democratic revolution in October uh, of 2000, um, even then uh, uh, that the government was very nationalistic uh, when it comes to you know, Kosovo. So uh, propaganda has been alive, uh, basically uh, 
promoting those nationalistic narratives, you know, uh, when it comes to Kosovo. So you do have still a lot of people um, who uh, promote those uh, narratives from the 90s. My concern is that the younger generations that never experienced um, any war um, in the region um, and how actually young Serbs uh, have become very nationalistic through music, through art, etc., etc. And I fully believe that that's something we need to start uh, investing in uh, when it comes to democracy promotion, because this will be very costly, but I'm also, you know, very positive that this can be also uh, sorted out. When it comes to Kosovo, so uh, uh, maybe, you know, someone from, from Kosovo can actually uh, step up and to help me with that, but my sentiment with my friends um, in the region, I hear like two different stories, which is that uh, Kurt on one side, he's very very, um, and he is very stubborn when it comes to uh, when it comes to you know his politics. Um, that uh, he is also, but he is not a corrupt leader, and he uh, stands behind you know his actions and words, and he wishes you know uh, Kosovo that he wishes you know Kosovo to be a democratic state, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, um, and they they are just you know young people that I interact with. They're also you know concerned about uh, where this is going to end. Just the question you know, that Piotr just asked me earlier. Uh, a lot of people that I see also on social media, they also discuss, you know, about the alternative to Kurti and how he, you know, how the alternative would actually deal, you know, with the West in a more uh, a rational way, but that would, you know, hurt um, uh, the Kosovo uh, uh, Kosovo uh, independence. So the problem is that certainly you do not have a united voice, that people are uh, have a very divergent uh, views on that, uh, but I do believe that it will be much better if someone, for example, um, who is on the call from Kosovo who can share with us what is happening really on the ground and what is the general, you know, sentiment because um, uh, I, I see a lot of different, you know, messages uh, coming from, from both sides. But that is immensely important uh, question, Arbor, that you asked me because uh, that will really determine the future, you know, of Serbia-Kosovo relations. That was a conversation with Ivana Strada, research fellow at the Foundation for Democracies and correspondent with the Kiem Post. And we were joined by retired Colonel Jeffrey Fisher, a former senior U.S. diplomatic defense official and formerly part of NATO Special Operations in Belgium. If you enjoyed this episode, then do drop us a like and share with your communities as it really helps to grow the show. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.